Good morning, church family. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. I just want to uh, thank Richard Anderson this morning for toughing it out, leading our uh, worship time. Let's give that young man a hand. I was thinking not just about the sacrifice Richard had to make this morning uh, to get up and get ready despite not feeling well, but I was able to text a friend of mine who is also not feeling well the uh, website to our live stream so that he could tune in. And I was reminded of the sacrifices so many men and women make so that what we do here on Sunday mornings can happen. And each one of you guys who, who is involved, you guys in the sound booth, to our worship team, um, to our ministers and servers at the table, you are all very much appreciated. If you will, yeah, well, let's give them a hand. Thank you guys and ladies. Open your Bible to John chapter 13, if you would. I'm going to be speaking to you a sermon that I've entitled, New Command. And in John chapter 13, Jesus speaks some words to us that I think are very important for us to remember today. Now, before we get into our text, and as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story of a young boy from Iowa who experiences a sudden and unexpected career change at 22 years old. And he goes from pursuing what he would later call his life dream to stocking groceries at a local Hy-Vee grocery store. And at 22, he notices the smile of a 26-year-old young lady named Brenda, who is a cashier at this Hy-Vee grocery store. And he decides that he's going to muster up some courage and go and talk to Brenda and ask to give her possibly a ride home or go get a cup of coffee. And initially... Uh, She refuses, but young Curtis is persistent and not one that easily gives up and convinces her to let him drive her home, at which point he asks her out, at which point she also turns him down, at which point he further resolves, I'm going to ask again. So over the course of a, a couple of weeks, young Curtis finally earns himself the opportunity to take Brenda out on a date. He shows up to her house a couple of days later after she agrees, and she comes to the door regretfully declining uh, the date that they had set up because her child care fell through. And Curtis didn't realize she had children, and he said, well, why don't we just bring your kids along? And she was surprised by this, and she explained that one of her children was special needs and that that might make it even more difficult. And Curtis was very open and encouraging, and they had their first date, and This was in 1994. Three years later, Curtis and Brenda were married in 1997. In 1999, Curtis, known to his team as Kurt Warner, led the St. Louis Rams to the Super Bowl championship, defeating the Tennessee Titans in a close game. And what Curtis and Brenda would later say, Kurt and Brenda Warner would later say, is that the love they had for each other and for their Lord is what made all the difference. What made all the difference in their lives, despite the hurdles they had to jump or the difficulties they faced or the struggles that they encountered, was their love for one another and their love for the Lord. And our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us that truth in His Word today. That if you will learn not just to love God, but to love one another, it'll be the difference that makes all the difference in your life. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he is beginning in this certain uh, 
area of John's gospel, what we would call his farewell discourse. These are the famous last words of the Son of God incarnate in the flesh here on earth. And he is leaving his disciples with the wisdom he hopes to impart unto them so that they can carry his message and practice his mission in every day of their lives. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this to this group of very ordinary, very average men. He says, a new command I am giving you, and it is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you not should or can, but you must. This is an imperative. Jesus doesn't leave this as an option. You must love one another. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus here is saying a couple of things very simply and very plainly. The first thing Jesus tells his disciples is what he wants them to do. When you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're talking, when you're visiting with friends, I want you to be aware of loving one another. That's what he wants them to do. And he's pretty clear on how he wants them to do it. He wants them to love one another as he has loved them. And he also gives them their why. Recently, there's been a lot of uh, research done into how successful people are successful. And successful people are successful, at least in part, because they're motivated by the right why. What gets you up in the morning? What really lights your fire? What makes you do the things you do day in and day out? For Jesus, he hopes his disciples will be motivated by this why. So not just some will know, but that all will know. Everyone will know if you love one another the way I have loved you, if you'll fulfill this mission, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's their why. So if you really get to studying this text, one thing that you would realize is that this particular command is not really new. And all the way back in the book of Leviticus, God gives uh, Moses um, some, some commands And in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, one kind of variety of this particular command is given to the Israelite people. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says, Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Here's what the Lord is trying to teach His people, the Israelites. He's trying to teach them that they have a natural instinct which is going to be to to seek revenge or to hold a grudge. Hey, Israel, something's going to happen and you're going to be invaded by a foreign nation. Or you're going to be digging a well and somebody's going to come and they're they're going to assume control over that well by force. Or a king is going to be uh, persecutory against you. And you're going to feel the need to get revenge of your own strength. Or if you're not strong enough to get revenge, Israel, your tendency is going to be to keep score and hold a grudge against the person who has mistreated you. And that's going to be your very natural, flesh-based instinct. But God consistently tries to grow and develop people out of their natural instinct to have a more spiritual instinct. And we call this a learned instinct instinct. 
So you have these in marriage, right? Uh, when, my, when my wife says she wants to talk to me in a certain tone, uh, what was natural to me at first in our marriage is to say, no, I'm good. I'm good to go. But what has become my instinct later in marriage is to say, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I have time for that right now, as a matter of fact. What's not, my natural instinct is to say, no, I got something else going on. My learned instinct, my spiritual instinct, my Holy Spirit empowered instinct is to say, yes, ma'am, I happen to have time for that right now. This is what God's trying to get his people, the Israelites, to do. He's trying to get them to see you have a natural tendency to want to get revenge or hold a grudge. But I want you to do what's unnatural instead, what is spiritual. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. We'd have to go to a different gospel, the book of Matthew, to really kind of get uh, Jesus' take on this. But in Matthew chapter 22, our Lord Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? And of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day are trying to trap him and fool him and discredit him. And Jesus, in all his wisdom and all his majesty, says the perfect answer to the question. He says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. The the greatest command, high above all the others, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. That's the greatest. Now, this is what we would call a vertical love. A vertical love. And the more stable we are being in love with our Creator vertically, the more stable we will be on the earth in which we stand vertically. Uh, Some of you that know me well know that I'm afraid of heights. I actually have traveled with David Bromley, and we got to go on a a training to Seattle, and he wanted to go up on the Space Needle in Seattle, which apparently some people feel like is a fun, leisurely activity, but not me. And I'm also too insecure in my masculinity to set a healthy boundary and say, look, I really am fearful of heights. I prefer not to go, so what do I do? I say, oh, yeah, man, sure, I'd love to go up there. So we get to the top, and the higher we go, the more vertical we get, the less stable I I feel. And something happens to me when I get in a high place. I do really get vertigo, where you kind of get shaky and wobbly need. And so uh, David tried to get me to take a picture, like, near the edge of the Space Needle, because I'm, like, like magnetized to the back wall as far as you can get away from the ledge. And so he's like, no, come here, and hands this guy uh, uh, his phone to take a picture. And so... I like leave the back wall and I grab onto the ledge and I look at this guy for like three seconds, smile, take a picture and then get back. It works the exact opposite in our relationship with God. Whereas when Trent gets more, gets higher up vertically, he feels less stable. The, the better connected we get to our heavenly father and the higher we get with him vertically, the more stable we're going to feel in life. And this is Jesus' intent. This is his purpose in telling us what the greatest command is. This is why God gives his people this command uh, also in Leviticus. It's not just that you love the Lord your God and are stable vertically, but when you're that stable vertically, you can do what Leviticus and what Jesus also ends up saying is the next necessary step. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is a horizontal love. And when we're, we're, when we're in love with a community of fellow believers or people that we deeply care about, we feel better connected in life. And that's the purpose for which we've been designed. 
to feel connected to other men and women who share our value set, who are in the body of Christ, who are moving forward fulfilling the same mission that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to fulfill by giving them this new command in John chapter 13. So you can love one another. That's why you've been created. To find that body of believers that you can immerse yourself within and fulfill this mission in. This is it. So, so the disciples also in another part of the gospel story, this is in Mark uh, chapter 9, get a clearer sense of what it really means to love like Jesus loved. He said, he said first, I, this new command I'm giving you, that you love one another. And, and, and the new command is about not necessarily loving your neighbor. It's about loving one another in terms of loving another believer. And that's what's new in scope about this particular command. And, and before this moment in John's gospel, in the other gospels we get this story. It's, it's in Mark chapter 9 and it's also in Luke chapter 9. It's Mark chapter 9 verse 40. It's Luke chapter 9 verse 50. So Jesus' disciples are going around and they're ministering to people. And they see a person that they don't know who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they feel at odds with this guy like... He's not one of us. He's not a part of our inner circle. He's not a part of our group. We don't know how this guy came to faith. We don't know what his credentials are. We don't know what his experience in ministry is. We don't know what his theology is. So we felt like we were supposed to rebuke him. And Jesus says something that's really profound, that's the exact opposite of what we say when we use this phrase. In the United States, when we use a phrase similar to this, we say, if you're not for me, finish that sentence. You're against me. That's how we say it. Because we look at reasons in our natural self. In our natural self, we look at reasons to exclude another, to be adversarial to another, to be segregated from another, or to be divided from another. In our natural self, we don't want to love one another. In our natural self, we're looking for reasons to think we're better than somebody, and that's tough to think about or we're looking for reasons to think this guy's really not as good as he seems he's really he may be casting out demons but he's not one of us we don't know how he came to faith we don't know what his theology is jesus so we we were fixing to tell this guy hey you can't do this you got to come follow us you got to be one of our crowd and jesus says the opposite of what we would say we would say if you're not for me you're against me and jesus says hey if this guy's not against me he's for me Jesus is actively looking for reasons to unify. Jesus is actively looking for reasons to connect. Jesus doesn't see segregation. He sees solidarity. And when Jesus tells his disciples, love one another, what I believe he's telling them is, look, guys, when you're in the body of Christ, you're going to tend to carry some of those same natural patterns you had before you were reborn in me into your new life with me. And unfortunately, you're going to carry some of those same patterns into the relationship you have with your brothers and sisters who are also in me. Yes, you should love your neighbor, which in Jesus' time and also in Moses' time in Leviticus would have included people's enemies. Your neighbor isn't always somebody you like, and some of you have lived next door to people you didn't really like, and you really get the gist of 
what I'm trying to say there. When your neighbor's too loud, got the car door slamming too late at night, you know, and you're going, man, what, i got to get away from these guys. To love your neighbor as yourself could mean to love your enemy as yourself. But Jesus here in John 13, listen to this, church, is taking it one step further. What if it's your brother or sister in Christ who has hurt you? It's way more difficult to love people that you're emotionally invested in that have hurt you than to love people you're not emotionally invested in that have hurt you. When it's your brother or sister in Christ who has hurt you, it's much more difficult to keep loving that person than it is your neighbor who's your enemy because you don't have the same emotional investment in that person or the same expectation of their behavior that you do your brother and sister in Christ. Kurt Warner, after he won the Super Bowl in 1999, uh, was asked what he had to say for himself. It's an unbelievable story. 22-year-old kid, cut from the Green Bay Packers, working as a stock boy in high V, meets this lady with two kids, one special needs. They fall in love. In 1994, they meet. In 97, they're married. In 1999, the guy wins his thinking Super Bowl championship. I can't imagine what would have been on Kurt Warner's mind when he was asked what he had to say for himself. The guy had been through so much, and the first thing he says was that he wants to thank his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we had a similar experience to that in in the NCAA football national championship this last year. Um, When Alabama won, they put in a freshman QB named Tua Tagovailoa. And after this kid led Alabama to the Super Bowl championship, he says, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a lot of us, and I have this. A lot of us want to do what Jesus' disciples were doing in Mark chapter 9 and verse 40. A lot of us want to go, I wonder if this kid's drinking every weekend. I wonder how many girls he's had sex with in the last couple of weeks. Now here he is saying he loves Jesus and Jesus is his Lord and Savior. I wonder what kind of a lifestyle he's living. That's the natural instinct that we have. To think we're better than somebody else, to check somebody else's theology, to check their lifestyle and their message and and whether it aligns with them really saying they love Jesus. And Jesus would say resoundingly, you sinful, sin-sick, flesh-ridden person. I told you if, if they are not against you, then they're for you and that you should love one another. And it is sinful for you not to have a first response of love but instead have a first response of judgment. And we wonder why things in the United States of America are so divided and divisive and politically charged, where we got to worry about what we're saying and to whom. It's because God's church is not following the command of Jesus Christ to love one another. And we can't get behind a young guy who leads his team to the national championship or a guy who leads his team to the Super Bowl. And instead, we're wanting to check conversions and convictions and comments and lifestyle traits. And it's, it's sin. It is sin for us not to follow the command that Jesus is begging us to follow. Man, love one another. Jesus isn't looking for reasons to be divided. He's looking for reasons to be headed in the same direction. And we're, and we're guilty of doing that in this church. 
man, on Friday nights they got instrumental music or they, they sing a song that ain't even a praise song. Man, how dare us be divided over such trivial issues. Or man, in second service they're doing this. Man, I praise God for second service. And I thank God for our Friday night Celebrate Recovery ministry. And without things like that, I never would have set foot in a church building. And so we've got to learn to follow that command, man, to love one another. As Jesus Christ has loved each of us, he's looking for reasons to unify, not divide, to head in the same direction, not to segregate, but to stay committed to one another. And he's shown us just now in John chapter 13 how that works. In John chapter 13 and verse 5, Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet. He's not just telling them to love one another. He has shown them what that kind of love looks like. The kind of love Jesus showed to others is the kind of love that is willing to experience shame for the degree of love that it feels. The kind of love that Jesus showed is the kind of love that's willing to experience shame for the love that it shows. Let me give you an example from my life. I am totally crazy in love with my wife. I always recommend guys date out of their league because they may just get lucky one time. And that's my testimony. Okay? One time I was wanting to really impress Kirsten. And so and you young guys out here that are unmarried, please use this. I stole this from somebody. I can't remember where I got it. Um, but I stole this from somebody and I was really impressed with myself. All right? Which does happen from time to time. So I bought 10 100 grand candy bars you know what i'm talking about it's like a hundred grand it's in a red package and 10 100 grands is how much that's one million right so i got 10 hundred grand candy bars and i taped them on my wife's car um, window and i left her a note i said babe here's 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 a hundred here's 10 hundred grand candy bars which equals a million and just like you, they're, they're one in a million. And it was this elaborate kind of writing and nice penmanship for the first time in my life. And I taped them on there. Well, my wife lived in her aunt's uh, renovated uh, guest house in the back of her property. And they both drove red sports cars. And so my wife gets a knock on her door at about 6.30 in the morning from her aunt. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, walks out and is like, Aunt Monica, why why are you waking me up at like 6.30 a.m.? Monica's like, I'm just about late for work. And I thought somebody taped a sweet note on my front windshield, but I realized it was from Trent. And you got to come out here and see this. So Kirsten goes out to see the one in a million message I've taped onto her aunt's red sports car and she called me and i felt like this big you talk about ruining the punchline it was a humiliating and shameful experience i promise you so the next time i'm around her family i kind of walk in you know like this i was willing to be ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated for the love that i felt for kirsten And Jesus is willing to do that on a scale we cannot even imagine. Jesus bent down and washed the feet of these very ordinary guys 
who he knew were going to deny him and betray him and doubt him and struggle really with whether or not they were going to leave the faith that they had placed in him. And he washed their feet anyway. That's a love that's willing to be ashamed for the degree of love that it feels. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2, Jesus says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, for the shame set before him, Jesus endured the shame and went to the cross anyway for the love that he feels for us. Jesus was willing to not just experience the shame of washing his disciples' feet, but endure the shame and humiliation of being beaten and tortured and stripped naked and, and, and die upon a cross. And that's the kind of love that Jesus shows for us. It's not just love that's willing to be ashamed. It's love that's willing to sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. That's the message of the gospel. That Jesus loved you and your sin so much and me and my sin so much that no matter the bad things we've done or the mistakes we've made or the times we would have walked away from Him and denied our faith and turned our back, He says, I love you enough to sacrifice myself for you anyway. I love you enough to carry your sin and shame up to this cross anyway. I love you enough to stay on the cross even though it's literally going to kill me to do that. That's how much I love you. And some of us can't even tolerate hearing a guy like Kurt Warner or Tua Tagovailoa say, I love Jesus on the television screen when they win a national championship. How sad and sin sick of us when Jesus has left us such a good example. John chapter 15 and verse 13. This is in a sense what Jesus says. You want to know the greatest love of all? The greatest love you can ever find is when a man is willing to lay down his life for another. Jesus means two different things here. First, Jesus does literally mean be willing to give your life for those you love. And how far away is that from what love we most of the time demonstrate towards other men and women who are in Christ Jesus? But it's not just be willing to give your life in love. It's also a willingness to live your life in love. When we get married, what I'm pledging to Kirsten is not just that I would take a bullet for you, but every single day of my life, I'm willing to keep my eyes only for you. I'm willing to provide for you and live as a man of integrity for you and care for you and show you affection. And I certainly drop the ball in all of those areas. But that's the pledge I'm taking up. It's not just a sacrifice in one moment, in other words. It's a daily sacrifice, week to week, month to month, and year to year, which is what Jesus demonstrates in living 33 years of a sinless life despite unimaginable persecution. Every time he's tempted and turns away, every time his road gets long and the nights get dark and he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders, he keeps going because he loves you. Why do we do this? Jesus says in John 13, we do this so that everybody can know. The reason we're doing this is so the whole entire world will know. You might be surprised to think on these terms, but but the word and message of Jesus no longer comes through the person of Jesus. It comes from the person of Trent. 
or David or Mike or whatever your name is. People are going to come to an awareness of Jesus Christ, not because Jesus is going to stand in front of them physically and preach truth to them. People are going to come to Christ because you're going to stand in front of them and you're going to preach truth to them. So you should be always evangelizing. And I've heard this attributed to two different um, early church fathers, Francis of Assisi or Augustine. You should evangelize always and when necessary use words. That's what Jesus is saying right here in John 13. People are not going to hear the gospel as loudly through the words that you speak, church, as much as they're going to hear loudly by the love that you show to one another, to other men and women who are in Christ. In John chapter 21, and I'm going to conclude with this thought, uh, Peter, who would have been among the number of those that Jesus was speaking to in John chapter 13, is feeling a little discouraged. And he's going back to what he knows. And I was thinking about preaching another miniature sermon on our tendency to go back to what we know, despite what we know to be truth in Jesus Christ. Peter's gone back to what he knows. He's fishing again. And Jesus encounters him on the shore, reveals himself to Peter. And then he challenges Peter a couple of different times. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He uses multiple words for love, multiple words for sheep, and multiple words for shepherd. And I've taught that a number of different ways. But God was really dealing with me on this. Trent, what does it really mean to love one another? And I think that's exactly what Jesus was trying to tell Peter. Hey, Peter, I'm about to ascend to be at my father's right hand. And I need somebody here who's going to shepherd people, who's going to help people grow, who's going to encourage people, who's going to develop people. Do you love me? And if you love me, then the way you're going to feed these guys is you're going to love them. You're going to love them with the same kind of love that I love them with. A love willing to be ashamed for the degree to which it loves. If you're, going to, if you're going to love me and feed my sheep, then you're going to love them with the same kind of sacrificial love that I love them with. And I don't have time to go through all of Peter's story, but this guy was a guy just like you and me. He made mistakes. He was a hypocrite. He failed in ministry. Some of his sermons failed. And some of our sermons are going to fail. We're going to get a scripture reference wrong or we're not going to make the point right when it drives home or some of the songs we sing are going to fail. We're going to be out of tune or we're going to forget the words or some of the counsel we give is going to be bad counsel. It's not going to connect or it's not going to make sense given context. But love will never fail. Love will never fail. If you live with a sacrificial and shaming kind of crazy love, you'll never fail to get everybody to know. That Jesus loved them and died for them and can transform their lives. Not because of how good of a preacher you are. Because preaching is going to fail. Ask me. I've preached one bad sermon in my seven years of ministry. It can happen to anybody. Songs are going to be sung out of tune. We're going to forget words. Singing's going to fail. Counsel is going to fail. I'm, I, I do hundreds of counseling sessions a year. And there's only a small percentage that I really feel like are home runs. Counseling's going to fail. But you know what will never, ever fail is love. 
Love's never going to fail. How we do church sometimes, that's going to fail. The times we meet, what, what clothes we say you have to wear, what we're teaching, sometimes that, those things are going to fail, but we'll, what will never, ever fail is love. And Jesus is saying, you know what command I want you to follow that will never let you down, that will always make a difference? I want you to love one another. And now he's talking about other believers. And at White's Ferry Road, we love. Let's make sure that includes us. Let's make sure that includes us. I I believe God is challenging us as a church to grow in our love for one another. And, And ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you that if we will surrender to Christ and pass the challenge, which we can do, not because of us, but because of Him, we will be the kind of church that doesn't just change our local community or state or even nation, but our whole world. And that's what I want to be a part of. Wherever you're at this morning, God's challenging your heart. I know that He is to love more. If you have a need to love more or sin to repent of, or if God's just dealing with you on something else, we're going to invite you to come forward. I want to pray over you and love on you in the name of Jesus. Bow with me. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for this church and and for the love that we do have for everybody, God. And it just always has been a, a, a point of encouragement and satisfaction for me in seasons of my life that have felt very difficult. God, I ask that whatever the need here each person may have is, God, that you would just empower them to come forward and to get loved on by you and by your church. And I ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me while together we sing.